Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to the 27th podcast in our series on American history. In the 26th podcast, we looked at how important the presidential election of 1800 was. The prior three elections, it's not that they weren't important, but the first two were a given. Of course, Washington was going to win. Washington would probably still be president, winning every election on his own if he were still alive. So that wasn't really a surprise. Then the third presidential election, when John Adams is elected president, again, not a big surprise. Washington's vice president now gets the top job. And in some cases, more importantly, the same political ideology remains as Washington and Adams were both Federalists. However, the election of 1800, not only is another candidate unseating a sitting president who wanted to run for one more term, but it's also a complete change of political ideology, as Thomas Jefferson was an anti-federalist, again, today's Republicans. So with that and the fact that he only won by a single vote when it was thrown to the House of Representatives was a real test for the Union, as we discussed in that podcast, and we passed truly with flying colors. Later on in the podcast, I then introduced you to the personal side of Thomas Jefferson in terms of who he was, some of the quirks, some of the attributes, et cetera, that he had as a human being, much less as president of the United States. We looked at his application of reform within his domestic policy, and then we ended with the discussion about Jefferson looking west and worried about a, a deal, military alliance between France and Spain that truly could corner the United States in. So with that, as we talked about, Jefferson engaged with diplomacy with Great Britain and then approached Napoleon simply to sell the port of New Orleans. And as we know, he flipped back. He, Napoleon came back with, hey, not only will I give you New Orleans, but for transferring that to modern day dollars for $1.2 trillion, I'll also give you all of France's territory there in the continental modern-day United States. So as we know, Jefferson considered the offer. His problem was that he was a strict constructionist. This constitution didn't state that he could do it, but yet he did it anyhow. And for less than three cents, of an, three cents an acre, he acquired 828,000 square miles. But I ended with a question as to what really did Jefferson, on behalf of the United States, what really did he purchase? What was out there? And that's what I ended with because I said I had to run back in time to uh, talk with uh, Lewis and Clark, and I did. I'm feeling a little dusty, a little jet lag here. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm back, and it was really a heck of an excursion, even though at that time of its conclusion, it would be considered a huge failure. So that's what we're going to look at today here on our 27th podcast in, in American history. So Meriwether Lewis, and William Clark. Lewis was a personal aide 
to Thomas Jefferson. And for that reason, Jefferson tapped him to lean on one other personal close confidant to recruit a few dozen men in order to explore what is up the, after the mouth of the Missouri River when it empties into the Mississippi River. Mind you, when Jefferson launches this trip, technically we do not own that territory yet. And it's not even as though he figured, well, I'm sure we're going to get it. There was none of that. Jefferson also, despite the other attributes of his personality, he would be, not our last, but arguably our very first naturalist president. And I don't mean that as a compliment. I also don't mean it as, as a knock to him either. It was just his personality. Jefferson was an extremely curious individual. He wondered about everything. And then once figured out, could it be improved? Could it be different? Could something be made cheaper, etc.? That's what Jefferson's personality was all about. By the early 1800s, the eastern half of the United States had been colonized now for over three centuries. So this was all pretty much a given east of the Mississippi. But what was out west? And unfortunately, every time Jefferson jumped on his laptop to, do to download a couple of images from Google Earth, there was always a problem with the internet connection. You know, after a while, he just pulled his hair out and he said, that's it. Got to go have to find out for myself here. So that's why he taps Meriwether Lewis, who then leans on William Clark. They recruit 48 men. And when I <clears throat> state that there's 48 men, it's a fluid number because men will constantly be running from Washington, D.C. or to Monticello, Jefferson's personal property in Virginia, back to where Lewis and Clark had continued on their journey because Jefferson wanted continual updates on what exactly that they were uh, finding, what were they encountering. So they leave on May 14th, 1804, with 48 men sailing down the Ohio River, to the Mississippi River, and then up the Missouri River. After that, everything is off of a known map. Part of the reason why it will take them just over a year and a half to reach the Pacific Ocean is because of the time that they took to record, and I can't stress the next word enough, to taking the time to record everything. Everything that they saw in the sky, birds, insects, other animals, plants, landforms. Not only was there a long list in a journal that Meriwether Lewis was keeping, which Jefferson was just absolutely delighted knowing that Lewis was doing this, but samples of everything that Lewis and Clark and their men recorded Samples, if possible, were sent back to Washington, D.C., so that Jefferson could see them for himself. It became kind of a standard <clears throat> routine that when Jefferson's personal assistants working in the White House saw a shipment coming in with the latest artifacts from their expedition, the advisors to Jefferson knew well enough that the president was essentially checked out for the rest of the day. As Jefferson would drag the box or crate or whatever that the materials were in, drag it into the Oval Office, shut the doors behind him, 
And then almost like a kid on Christmas morning would sit down on the floor and open up and study everything that, again, Lewis and Clark were sending back. However, the ultimate reason for the trip, yes, was to discover what they could, to see how much or how little the western half of the North American continent was different than the eastern half. What were the similarities? What were the differences? But there was also another an an ulterior motive to Thomas Jefferson, ever the history and geography student that he was, is we tend to forget that even when I'm teaching this in American history, we're eight weeks into the course now. We tend to forget that the whole reason Europeans arrived here to begin with was because of a question put forth by an explorer by the name of Christopher Columbus. Was there an all-water route from the shores of Europe to the shores of Asia? As we know, Columbus took four trips here and ultimately never figured that answer out. Ladies and gentlemen, by 1804, there still wasn't an answer. That's what Jefferson wanted to know. Going up the mouth of that Missouri River, is there an all-water route through the North American continent? By the time Lewis and Clark arrived on the shores of the Pacific Ocean in modern-day Oregon, on November 24th, 1805, they discovered the Pacific Ocean and then hung their heads low. Because ultimately, as they would discover, there wasn't an all-water route. At some point, in fact, a few points, Lewis and Clark had to lift up every sailing vessel, carry it over land to the next waterway, always pointed out by some Native American tribe. But ultimately, there would never be an all-water route through the Americas for almost another 100 years when the Panama Canal was established, as well as eventually, the or before that, the Erie Canal, But all the Erie Canal did was connect the Great Lakes to the Atlantic Ocean, not minimizing it, but it still wasn't an all-water route across the Americas. So that's the reason why the Lewis and Clark expedition was considered a failure, was because ultimately Jefferson's answer was not the one that he wanted. There's no all-water route. Those That was also the second of the two reasons why, when the news came out, that Lewis and Clark were back in Washington or back in the Washington, D.C. area, the reason that Jefferson thought this could make him, had it been before the election, truly a one-term president, but it still wouldn't remove the possibility of impeachment. Not only did he spend federal funds without congressional authorization to purchase the land, secondly, there turned out to be no all-water route to the Pacific Ocean, And thirdly, he launched an an expedition technically on foreign soil, once again, without congressional approval. So for those three reasons, Jefferson thought he very much could be the first impeached president. Then why didn't it turn out that way? Because just like Columbus came back to Europe with nothing but a litany of questions, so too did Lewis and Clark come back, not only also with a long list of questions, but also artifacts again samples of plants and animals and others that people in the East never saw before. 
The curiosity of the American intellect was so heightened that the moment the anti-federalists started to rumble about impeachment, they were shut down by their own constituents, saying, how could you be so preoccupied with that when there is literally another half to our known world here at the United States that's recently come under the American flag, also due to Jefferson? Jefferson's popularity skyrocketed and by and large never went back down. In the end, what really was discovered? In terms of the plants and animals, that could be a series of podcasts by itself, as a few books have been written on it as well. But ultimately, and keep in mind, Lewis and Clark are not using any form of a GPS system the way we use it today. He's using nothing but celestial bodies and the instruments of the day. And by the time he returned back home, he had, along with his partner, Lewis, or excuse me, William Clark, estimated that they had traveled 4,166 miles. Using modern day GPS technology, folks, Lewis and Clark in their estimation was only 40 miles off. It shows you again just how bright and dedicated these men were to trying to record as accurately as possible literally every step they took and every inch that was discovered. The end count also would be 122 species of animals along with 178 plants. Despite the fact the way some Hollywood legends like to twist the account of Lewis and Clark, their guns were only fired once in anger out of form of protection and never fired at anybody. The shots were made in the air to calm people down. No one was injured, I mean, outside of personal injuries, a, a stop or fall or something like that, but there was no injuries due to uh, violence or anger. There was no uh, soldiers lost to tribes taking prisoners or anything, again, the way sometimes Hollywood likes to portray it. But there was also, sadly, another tragedy that befell the Lewis and Clark expedition and would affect our record of it for well over a century and a half later. When the Lewis and Clark expedition was officially over and the men went back to their lives, including William Clark himself, Meriwether Lewis, medically unknown at the time, began to suffer from basically severe depression. The hour, his hour had passed. The limelight was gone. And Jefferson was putting continual pressure on Meriwether Lewis to print, formally print, publish, and publish his uh, logs and diary of the entire trip. And Lewis kept saying, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. Jefferson wanted it done before his presidency was over as a gift to the American people that he would leave in the final days of his presidency. It never happened. Lewis just never got around to it. Even when Jefferson is in his retirement, he still pushed Lewis to please publish those journals. He never did. And what's worse is that Lewis began to start getting suicidal. And eventually on one particular day, Lewis attempted suicide and was unsuccessful that morning through his eyes, unsuccessful, of course. 
He attempted to commit suicide a second time that day. And then finally, later in the afternoon, he committed suicide, unfortunately, successfully. With his death, Jefferson dropped into a chair, realizing that the minutiae, the fine details of the Lewis and Clark expedition now would largely never be known. Had it not been for one Dr. Stephen Ambrose, who eventually acquired those records from the Meriwether Lewis estate and published in his book called Undaunted Courage, for the first time, Americans were seeing actual drawings that Lewis and Clark and other of their men made in order to try to detail what was being visual, what was being seen so that Jefferson and others could visualize it later on. It was a remarkable achievement by Dr. Stephen Ambrose to put that text together in, again, a book called Undaunted Courage. I cannot recommend enough to take the when you have the opportunity to read that book. So looking back as we talk about the Lewis and Clark expedition in immediate after effects is considered a failure. But it's not long between the euphoria that the American people feel for not only finding that their country has been doubled in size, but also a country now, another half, that clearly has life forms and assets and uh, landscapes that are very different than anywhere found in the East Coast or the Eastern half of the United States. The trip in, in retrospect becomes a success. And since then, regard from even according to the most dour or sour historian is largely considered a success. This is not only what helps to keep Thomas Jefferson in the top uh, rankings of presidents, but usually even in the top five considered a great president. However, why then doesn't he ever get to displace somebody like Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, or George Washington? Well, George Washington, for obvious reasons we talked about, but the Lewis and Clark expedition oftentimes glosses over a significant failure of the Jefferson administration, one that had the potential to clearly knock him down to an average, if not below average, president. And it's glossed over largely, again, as I say, because of the Lewis and Clark expedition. But we have to acknowledge this, though, as I do in my classes, and I will do now in this podcast, because it was it was the brainchild of Jefferson, an idea that sounded good in paper or on paper, but turned out to be a failure in reality. And that's what became known as the Embargo Act of 1807. You recall in the Adams administration in his one term when I talked about international impressment of American ships by the French, Spanish, Portuguese, even at times, as well as the British, that was still going on. Even though Adams attempted to try to rectify it with what became known as the Quasi War, specifically with France, it by and large didn't work. Uh, France, in some cases, did back off a little bit, but then England would then step in. And as we talked about, it was driving insurance cost and shipping cost up several hundred percent. One particular incident called the Chesapeake Incident was yet another example of an unsuspecting American merchant ship being harassed by the British on the high seas. At that point, Jefferson passed the Embargo Act that there would be no trading with any European country. 
essentially what Jefferson was doing was the old grade school teacher idea of trying to punish one person by punishing more. You might remember if this ever happened to you in grade school where one individual kid or maybe two students does something wrong and the teacher punishes the whole class. Why the thought of putting peer pressure on the one or two little rascals by the rest of their classes? In the end, though, what it creates is a lot of animosity against the teacher and is rarely effective. That was the end result with the Embargo Act. We were shutting off American enterprise with the prominent European countries. The problem, ladies and gentlemen, again, on paper, through words, it seemed like it could be a very effective policy to whip the European countries back into line with proper international trading policies. The problem was with the numbers. Over 75% of American trade was with Great Britain alone, not to mention France, Spain, and Portugal. However, of what the British bought from us was less than 10% of the goods coming into their country. Worse, if you recall how Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton in the Washington administration was trying to bring in desperately needed funds into the United States Treasury was through, of course, the custom duties. Well, the moment Jefferson cut off the international trade, out went the custom duty collections. And over 90% of revenue flowing into the United States Treasury came from the custom duties. And a vast majority of that 90% was from, guess who? You got it. Exactly. Great Britain. To understand more about this in the different mathematical dynamics of the Embargo Act, I more than recommend the book American Creation by Joseph J. Ellis. Uh, Ellis, also a prominent historian, as was the late now Dr. Stephen Ambrose, Ellis has a way of taking extremely complex policies throughout presidential and American history and putting them in a way that not only is easily easy to understand, but he doesn't state it in a way that he's just asking you, the reader or the listener, to take his word for it. He actually has the numerical demonstration to prove about why he's drawing the conclusion that he was. It was, again, as I say, a colossal failure. It put the United States into a depression or a down financial tailspin, and there seemed to be no end in sight. Why then? I mean, you want to make a president unpopular. When a president attempts to run for re-election, the worst time to do it is when there is serious economic problems. Don't believe me? Ask James Buchanan, a one-term president. Ask Herbert Hoover, a one-term president. George H.W. Bush, another one-term. Or wait a minute, you say Bush had a 92% approval rating, higher than any president in American history, including Washington's. That's correct, because of the Persian Gulf War. But less than a few months later, we went into an economic tailspin. Ladies and gentlemen, remember, people vote with their wallets more than they do their memories or anything else. Bush also became a one-term president, largely due to financial reasons. Then why wouldn't Jefferson, why wouldn't this be a larger albatross around his neck? Primarily because of arguably one of the most noble acts that a sitting president could do. And that was to take full responsibility for the negative outcome 
of his political failure, the Embargo Act. He repealed the act on March 3rd, 1809. Please note that date, March 3rd, 1809. The significance is that Jefferson in November of 1808 found out who his successor was, his Secretary of State, James Madison, to become the fourth president of the United States. As a result, on March 4th, Madison would have been inaugurated or was going to be inaugurated as the next president. Rather than have this negative financial albatross around his neck to have to deal with, Jefferson took it away from him. And as a result, on March 3rd, the act went away and it was replaced with the Non-Intercourse Act, meaning that the United States would go either to an economic and or military war if necessary with individual countries that are harassing American ships on inter in international waters. So that brings us to the end of the Jefferson administration. Despite the Embargo Act, again, he is considered to be one of the, our, our America's great, if not near great presidents, depending upon the year the presidential ranking was done. And it opens up the way now for his Secretary of State, which at this point in early American history, that was the window in order to be able to jump into the Oval Office was a positive performance as Secretary of State. That will go by to the wayside significantly in later decades, but it was no surprise that this was the window of opportunity at this time. Mind you, Madison coming in is not only considered the father, if not just the recorder of the Constitution as we know it, he is also yet another founding father. So clearly we're seeing a line here of founding fathers that are working their way up through a current presidential administration to eventually be the next president of the United States. As a result of this, this line continues. We don't see a lot of pushback from this, but I do want you to keep in the back of your mind, all of these founding fathers, some of them are gone as we speak by 1809. Many are not in the best of health. Every one of them who's alive, of course, is getting older. Who does America, who will America turn to when there are no founding fathers left? Keep that in the back of your mind as we now plow in then to the uh, fourth president of the United States, James Madison. And what we're going to see with James Madison, yet another two-term president, is arguably our first military foray, our first military conflict, ironically enough, with all countries, once again, Great Britain, with what will become known as the War of 1812. This is part of the reason why, despite the fact that the war begins in a presidential election year, why wouldn't conflict have made Madison a one-term president? That's what we're going to take a look at when we come back on the next podcast is to look at the presidential administration of James Madison in the War of 1812, which if you're listening to this from the Great Lakes area, this is going to be something when I mention certain places that you may recognize and may not have known before was actually part an area that was part of the conflict known as again as the War of 1812. So Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have, especially book recommendations. If you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.